You are listening to The Investor Way with Sam Ball and Jonathan McEwen. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and follow us on Twitter at TIWTweets. Hello, welcome to The Investor Way with me, Sam Ball. I'm joined by my co-host, John McEwen. It's the 20th of October, 2022. And in this week's episode, we'll be discussing EasyJet, Sirius Real Estate, Intain, LVMH, Barrett Developments, and Netflix. John, should we start with EasyJet? So EasyJet, the FTSE 100 listed budget airline, had a trading statement out for the full year this week with full year losses expected between 190 and 170 million pounds, including the effect of exchange rates and disruption costs in the third quarter. In the fourth quarter, the group flew 88% of pre-pandemic capacity with 92% capacity and improving demand. Passenger numbers were up 81% to 24.3 million and ancillary revenue was up significantly with revenue per seat rising 52% above pre-pandemic levels. EasyJet holidays contributed to profits in its first full year of operations. Around 69% of EasyJet's fuel costs are hedged for the first half of the new year and net debt stood at around £700 million at the end of September. The group expects capacity to be around 83% of 2019 levels in the first quarter of the new financial year and notes that peak travel periods, including October half term and Christmas, have returned to 2019 levels. In terms of valuation, EasyJet has a market cap of £2.47 billion and whilst the group doesn't have earnings, it trades at a forward price to book ratio of 0.74 compared with a 10-year average of 1.87. Pretty brief, but I suppose some encouraging signs there. It's still loss-making. I'm not somebody who's keen on airlines. I also don't like the oil price. Well, I wouldn't like the oil price if I were EasyJet and buying it, the weakness of the pound and a recession which you would expect to impact on the flights and certainly the holidays. It's cheap, but I think cheap for a reason, and it wouldn't be one for me. Sam, your thoughts on this trading statement for EasyJet and the airline as a whole? Pretty similar. So, yes, I mean, if they're losing money still, that's that's definitely not good at all. The debt's not too bad, actually. When I saw they had debt of 700 million, I expected it to be a really, really big figure compared to what they earned. But if you go back, the problem is they're losing money on top of the debt, so it's probably going to get bigger. But in their last three years pre-pandemic, they had operating profits of 466 million, 463 and 404 million. So as a proportion of operating profits, it's less than 2x. So it's not it's not at a level where you think, oh, they're going to they're gonna struggle with this. But the problem is when they're just making losses as well. And I just think at the best of times, it's not a very good business. It's just not in an industry I'd ever be attracted to. I think as well, just as a side point, Buffett spent 50 years telling everyone how terrible investments airlines were, proceeded to buy four airlines and then just lost a load of money. He did have the misfortune of buying them pre-pandemic, but... If it's too hard for Buffett, as a rule, it's probably too hard for me. I think that's uh, a good okay. rule to live by. Fair enough. What about Short serious, sweet. What about serious mills then? Oh, so, sorry, 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 sorry. Serious real estate. Flash from the past, that. Yeah. yeah so <laughs> serious real estate, to my knowledge, is not associated with serious minerals. Serious real estate is a real estate holding company. 
listed on the FTSE 250. They own and operate business parks, providing conventional spaces and flexible workspaces in Germany and light industrial workshop, studio and out-of-town office units to a range of businesses in the UK. So they have come out with a trading update for the six months to 30 September 2022. And the highlights from the German side of the business included a 2.4% increase in like-for-like annualized rents roll to 115.2 million euros and all these figures are in euros and that's up from 112.5 million six months ago driven by a 3.3 percent increase in light for light rate per square meter to 6.53 they have a 12 month rolling cash collection rate of 98 percent and they have refinanced the 170 million euro Berlin Hype AG Amber Loan Facility with a seven-year term extension to October 2030, commencing from 1 November 23 at a 4.26% interest rate. This will increase the group's average weighted cost of debt from 1.4 to 1.9% and extend its weighted average debt, debt expiry from 3.8 to 5 years. Highlights in the UK included a 4.1% increase in light for light annualised rent roll to £46.5 million, driven by an 8.4% increase in light for light rate per square foot to £12.64. And the 12-month rolling cash collection rate was 99.3%. They've highlighted that the cash reserves increased to around €162 million, Euros, of which over £138 million is unrestricted, providing capacity for further acquisitions and investment. And for the lettings and rental growth, they've said total annualized rent roll increased to 167.9 million euros, despite the disposals of Madberg in Germany and Camberwell in the UK. Lifelike annualized rent roll grew by 2.4% in Germany and 4.1% in the UK. These improvements were mainly driven by a 3.3% and 8.4% increase in the life life average rental rates in Germany and the UK. Group total occupancy was marginally lower at 84.4% from 85.3% in March. The occupancy level continues to provide good opportunity for letting up space in the second half of the financial year. The overall positive performance is pleasing, given that the substantial rent roll increases in the six-month period have been achieved in the face of an uncertain economic environment, despite a number of large tenants vacating, as expected in the first half, following a similar pattern seen over preceding years. The company is expecting to replace these tenants quickly, which will help further drive rent roll increases in the near term. And on the balance sheet, they've said that they still have 1.6 billion of unencumbered assets. The portfolio was last valued at March 22, comparative to the rest of the sector, a relatively high gross yield of 7% in Germany and 12% in the UK. Due to the strong rent roll performance in the period in both Germany and the UK, together with the highly diversified income streams within the portfolio, the company is, is expecting values to increase as at 30 September 2022, in spite of potential yield expansion across the multi-let sector. Additionally, the improved FFO from continued rental growth, the lower quarterly debt repayments from introducing corporate bond financing last year, and the lower CapEx requirements of Sirius over the next year or so, the group has the strongest operational cash flow it's ever had. In terms of valuation, this was just a statement, so we don't have an updated earnings figure. If we use the earnings figure from the last 12-month results, we get a PE of 12.34, and it would be trading at 0.8x book value, but it would probably even be a bit lower just because the assets are expected to increase. 
and it also has a dividend yield of 5.33%. In terms of the share price over the last year, the shares are down 48%, and that's the main reason why it's trading so cheaply. I did have a look. I read a, there's, it's not got a huge amount of coverage, but I did read three or four articles on it, and I couldn't really read anything that suggested why it was so cheap. Because when the bulk of its assets are in real estate, I wouldn't expect it to trade that much below book value. And that dividend yield is quite attractive, especially when it seems like the rent's fairly secure. The only things I could really think of is it does have debt, but based on what it said, where the most of the debt has an average of five years anyway, that's not an immediate concern. And who knows where we'll be in five years with interest rates. I think, I don't know if it's just the sector it's in, where it's like those workspaces and flexible workspaces a lot in the UK and stuff. And if there's going to be more and more of a shift to working from home, maybe it's more of a, now that we've, maybe it's just that, yeah, that trend that's caused a drop in share price. So it's probably, it might've been a bit of a pandemic winner. Basically it's dropped and I couldn't really figure out why. It looks like it was a bit of a pandemic winner actually with those flexible workspaces. And I guess as people have returned to the offices properly, maybe then they've then started leaving. But if you look at the share price, it's actually about where it was in October 2019. But it had a massive rise in the pandemic and now it's come back down. But I thought it looked quite interesting. I thought it looked like a decent business on the surface. John, what are your thoughts on serious real estate and these results and the valuation? Yeah, I certainly thought um, that the dividends are very juicy and... The business sounds quite attractive in terms of the valuation. Oh, sorry, in terms of, um, you know, yeah, I suppose the valuation and why the share price has retreated so much. Do you think it's just pe- that sort of macro situation feeding into investors and thinking that perhaps this, this the cyclical element to it, that perhaps some of these businesses are going to be going bust or are not, I suppose, and vacating? the business parks and the occupancy might fall. And that's why it's less expensive than it was. I think so. And then it, it did hint at it. So I've not, I'm not, I've only looked at these results in isolation, but it did mention that in the March results, they did announce it had a few big customers leaving. So whether or not people have viewed that as the start of a trend, I don't know, but yeah. that's the only thing I could th- find really where it's sort of like, Oh, maybe that's why there was, it didn't, I didn't really understand why it was as low as it was. And you'd think providing the value of the assets isn't going to drop significantly. There'd be a base level below it, which it shouldn't fall. Yeah, I, I, I know I know what you mean. But I, I that that would be sort of my thoughts on it. But it, it, it's, I would probably have a, a go on my watch list anyway. Um, See, I, I didn't actually think it would go on my watch list just because I didn't think it was... Although my initial thought, and this this is from like a you know a 10, 20 minute look. Yeah. It it seemed like it could be undervalued, but it's just I don't want to buy something and then like, I, I don't really <laughs> see where it's not in a growth market kind of thing. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah someone yeah. might come along and you might get the balance sheet value or something, but it's just not my type of investment. But I yeah. I can appreciate why someone who was more into that sort of investing might want to take a look at it. And equally, if someone does know about it and there's something that we have missed, do shout. I say we, something that I have missed, please no. do shout. But, I mean, we, we have looked at some other business. There's primary health properties that we've had a couple of times on the show. Um, I think we both both like that. Um, but you wouldn't get that at like 0.8 book value. No, well, you wouldn't. And also your customer is effectively, 
underwritten by the government as well, mm. which is <laughs> quite a Helpful. nice position. <laughs> yeah, that's right. that's right, which um, unfortunately they're not. So yeah, you don't have to worry about them being cyclical because they're the opposite. Right. Okay, on to our next company then, Entain. Covered it a few times on the show. It's the gaming company, owner of Coral, Ladbrokes, and half of Bet MGM. They had a trading statement out this week for the third quarter, with group net gaming revenue flat, excluding the effects of exchange rates, with retail growing and offsetting a fall in online. Online net growth was down 2%, driven by a 4% decrease in sports net gaming revenue, with the total amounts staked on sports events down 3%. That was against strong comparators with the third quarter last year on the back of the Euros. Gaming Net gaming revenue was down 2% for the quarter and 7% year to date. Meanwhile, retail grew net gaming revenue by 10%, from a 4% rise in increased amounts wagered and 1.3% from increased sports betting margins. Net gaming revenue was up 8% in comparison with 2019 levels. Year to date, retail revenues are up 103%. In Bet MGM, the joint venture in the US with MGM, net gaming revenue grew 90% to $400 million in the third quarter and benefited from the start of the American football season. Net debt stood at £2.2 billion, or 2.3 times EBITDA. Full-year guidance on cash profits is between £925 and £975 million. A growth range of between 5 and 10% remains. Entain reports healthy momentum going into the final quarter, with comparatives easing for online as the effect of prior lockdowns becomes less relevant. Currently closed business in the Netherlands is expected to be licensed and operating before 2022 ends. The group is expecting the acquisitions of Bet City in the Netherlands and Supersport in Croatia to close before the end of the year and also launch a new venture partnership in Central and Eastern Europe. In terms of valuation, Entain has a market cap of just under 7 billion and trades at around 14 times forward earnings compared with a 10 year average of 10. Currently yields 2%. I thought these results were really impressive and better MGM particularly so. It's expected to start turning a profit next year and it's the market leader in several states in a sport betting and iGaming market worth $37 billion. Also, it's worth pointing out that Entain's revenue is more diverse, so only 50% comes from the UK. I don't like the industry, and that's probably a reason why I wouldn't buy the stock. But of the UK bookies, Entain looks by far and away the best and has those really exciting growth prospects um, in the States. So I think it would be uh, in that sector, it would be the pick, but it wouldn't be one for me. Sam, your thoughts on Entain and this statement? Uh, Very similar um, to you. It's I think it looks like a really exciting business. I wouldn't, I don't, I wouldn't want to invest in gambling. I find it a bit distasteful, but forward PE of 13.8, that's pretty cheap considering that you've got this US side of the business. We don't know how big it could be, but at 13 times earnings, it doesn't need to be that big. And the thing's growing at 90% a year. It's just, 
I don't know how big it could be, but I, I think at 13 times earnings, if, if it wasn't for the ethical concerns, I would, I would take a serious look at it and think, well, that's worth the punt. And ethics, ethics are a funny thing because there's some, there's some stuff in my portfolio where you'd maybe argue that it's actually less ethical. But there's something about gambling I just don't like. I've got Supreme in my portfolio and that has a 30% market share of the vaping market. I'd have, of the UK vaping market, I'd have no issues investing in a tobacco company. I'd have no issues investing in a, in a drinking company like Diageo. But for some reason, I, I just don't like gambling. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, it does show that ESG is fairly or s- somewhat subjective. And I think that's come into the fore a bit more in the last year with defence companies, which a lot of people had excluded from their portfolio because they didn't like companies that made any form of weapons. But then s- some people have changed their view on that with recent geopolitical events um, and how they, I suppose, see defence companies. But yeah, ESG is always changing. It is, yeah. But I think it's just, yeah. If if you genuinely like, if you don't have an issue, because there could be someone sat there who would never invest in like a something like Diageo that has no issues with this. Although from like a logical point of view, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any more sense logically than me owning Supreme, but saying I wouldn't have in Tate. So I was, I would say, if you're looking at it and you don't see an issue with it, I've, I'd take, I'd, I'd take, a, I'd be taking a serious look otherwise. Yeah, and I think it is that US side of the business that's mm. that differentiates it and um, does make it. Oh, yeah. If, if that wasn't in there, I wouldn't take a look at it, <laughs> to be <laughs> yeah. clear. That, that's yeah. why I'd be looking at it, because I think for the price you, you're getting that US business for, given how big it could potentially be, I think it looks very exciting. And I'm sure we'll enjoy following it on the show anyway. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's right. We will. Okay, on to our next company then. Yes, so it's a debut on the show. So it is LVMH, which is Louis Vuitton Moe Hennessy. So this is, it's actually listed in France, but occasionally we do like to slip a European one in. So it's a luxury brand. Well, it's got lots of luxury brands, actually. So it's got, these are just a few I've picked out, but Louis Vuitton, Christian Dior, Tagua Watches, Hennessy Cognac, Tiffany, Bulgari, I mean, it's like the Unilever of luxury, isn't it? It's just it's ridiculous, some of these brands. But anyway, they have come out with a trading update and they recorded a 20% increase in organic revenue in the first nine months of the financial year, reaching 56.5 billion euros. And all these figures will be in euros. In the third quarter, organic revenue was 19% higher. There was double-digit organic growth across all business areas. This reflects notable increases across Europe, US and Japan because of good demand from local customers, as well as increased recovery in international travel. While the group maintains confidence in its outlook, it acknowledged the uncertain geopolitical and economic backdrop. Interestingly, the group's CEO is Bernard Arnold, and he's actually been at their helm for getting on for 50 years now. And he's also the largest shareholder with his family owning 48% of the shares. So that's quite good. And there's probably going to be quite a big long-term focus there. If we split the trading update down by division, in wines and spirits, revenues rose 14% to 5.2 billion, which is very impressive, actually. That's a very big wines and spirits business, or bigger than I would have thought it would have been. With particularly strong showing in Europe, US and Japan, looking at Hennessy Cognac, supply chain issues in the US and lockdown restrictions in China were offset by the decision to continue increasing prices. The group said strong demand for its champagne houses placed extra pressure on supplies. 
The largest division, fashion and leather goods, recorded sales of 27.8 billion. So that's over 5x the wines and spirits, up 24%. Louis Vuitton did well. The latest collections have been well received. Dior also achieved remarkable growth. A selective distribution strategy helped perfumes and cosmetics rise 12% to 5.6 billion euros. Sauvage, Miss Dior and Jador did especially well in the Dior range. A new Stella McCartney skincare range was also launched. Watches and jewellery rose 16% to 7.6 billion, reflecting good growth in Tiffany & Co. in the US, as well as new additions to Bulgari's collections. Tag Heuer unveiled its new Calibre E4 Porsche edition smartwatch, and Hublot re- re- continued the countdown to the 2022 Football World Cup as its official timekeeper. The recovery in store activity helped Sephora sales, imp- sales improve, which boosted selective retailing. Divisional revenue jumped 20% to 10.1 billion. Groups invested in Sephora's online strategy. Travel business, DFS, was again held back by reduced travel and ongoing COVID restrictions in Asia. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a forward PE of 20.1, and that compares to a 10-year average of 22.1. The prospective yield is 2.1%. If we look at the financials for the past five years, it actually grown pretty well. So, it, so 2017, it was at 42 billion revenue, up to 46 in 2018, up to 53 in 2019. Then COVID dropped down to 44. And then last year it was back up to it was up to 64. So it smashed that, and then it's now gone and added another 20 percent to that. And then if we look at the operating profit again, operating profit's gone from eight billion to nine to eleven to eight, which includes the COVID year still proper still on an operating basis profitable 17 it does have quite a bit of debt but i I don't think it's at a level where i'd be too concerned about it i I think this looks like a really good business it's not one i'd ever looked at before i I am being serious i think it is like the unilever of luxury brands i think there's some fantastic brands in there it's quite pricey at 20 times earnings, but the last five years' figures are pretty good. I think you could do a lot worse. I, I like the look of it. John, what are your thoughts? No, I, I completely agree. It's got some of the strongest brands in the world, and I do like it. It's not cheap, but it's one of those one, one of those quality businesses that I'd probably, well, certainly add it to my watch list. I knew it'd be um, a bit of you. I did. Yeah, I do. I do like it. I got yeah. Well, because I just saw LVMH, I had no idea what it was, so I just picked yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, and I think because it's not listed in London, we just don't, it mm. doesn't really, it's probably in one of my world index, but <laughs> I haven't gone that far down to look at it. But it's um, like, if you compare yeah. that to, like, say, a UK one, like a Burberry, we I mean, just oh, yeah. dwarfs Burberry. This thing, yeah. I had no idea how big it was as well. And Burberry is a brand, while it, it's a strong brand, it's nothing compared with the mix that lvmh has yeah it doesn't have the same portfolio as well it's yeah. really just yeah well that's it yeah yeah that's true yeah no I, I like it what do you think about 20 times earnings for it i mean the growth the growth is pretty decent i'd have to look in more detail to see where it's come from because i think they acquired tiffany's fairly recently and that added quite a lot of debt so one of those jumps will be because of the tiffany's acquisition but the figures look pretty decent from a surface overview, the sale, the organic sales are still growing strongly. And I think it would be a very good business to own in an inflationary environment. Yeah. It's, all they yeah, have, it's like yeah. you've seen it with the supply chain issues. All they did yeah. was they just upped the price instead. Yeah. Most businesses yeah. can't do that. 
I think it's a pretty inflation-proof business in the long term because people will just pay more and more and more for these brands. So yeah, I, I think at 20 times earnings, it's definitely not cheap. But you know, we've we've covered a lot of businesses. I don't want to say of these quality because I don't want to lump it in with consumer goods. But in terms of the quality yeah. brands, it, it's up there with like a Nestle or something. And these kinds of businesses, you just don't get them under 20 times earnings. Now, you might <laughs> be thinking, well, if interest rates go up enough, hopefully you will. But I think at 20 times earnings in this market for this business, I think it's, I, you know, I wouldn't be happy about it. But it, it, it's it's just what you expect these businesses to go for, I think. Yeah, and it's what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I I do agree, and it's extremely high quality. You sort of you don't get much better than it, really. So yeah, I, I do like it on the watch list. I'm oh well, well I'll take a deeper look and uh, may well start to position it. Should we move on to another business that's probably at some point or another been on your watch list? <laughs> oh, sad. Well, it's another house builder. It's one we've covered before, Barrett Developments, listed on FTSE 100. They had a trading update out last week with a fall in net private reservations from July to October. Net private reservations were down to 188 per average week compared with 281 a year earlier as the economic uncertainty, cost of living concerns and higher interest rates began to bite. Despite this, Barrett launched 25 new developments, including joint ventures in the period, which was in line with expectations. The group operated from 338 active outlets down from 351 last year. The average selling price for private homes was up 9.6% on last year at £377,200. However, reduced sales reservation rates meant total forward sales came in at 13,314 homes, down from 15,393. This was still 2.7% ahead of pre-pandemic levels. The value of the forward book was down by £300 million to £3.6 billion. And for privately owned homes, the group is 64% forward sold. Home completions came in at 3,608, down from 3,699 last year, but in line with the group's budget plans. Completions are expected to be 55% weighted to the second half of the financial year. Barrett say that they are remaining committed to their disciplined approach to buying new land, leading to lower net land approvals. Overall, the group approved the purchase of 813 plots in the period, down almost 80%. Market conditions means approvals are expected to be substantially below replacement level in the 2023 financial year. The group remain on track to deliver full-year underlying pre-tax profits of around £972.5 million, which is in line with market expectations. Build cost inflation is between 9 and 10%, and shares were down 5% on the news. Barrett has a market cap of around three and a half billion and trades at seven times earnings with a forward price to book of 0.6 compared with a 10 year average of 1.21. It currently yields nearly 11%. I mean, I think we're certainly seeing the cycle begin to turn. However, I would maintain that I think the fundamentals in the UK property market and the political demand for new houses is is still there so the shares are cheap reflecting where we are in the cycle 
but it's one. Well, I, I don't hold, hold Barrett itself. I have Redro, but with either of them, I would be happy to continue to hold, enjoy the dividends while they're coming, reinvesting those, and well, I, I suppose essentially plan plan to hold it for the really long term and help that sort of compounding continue. But I think over the next few months year or two it could be a, a, a rocky ride but i think that's what you expect with a cyclical business and you've got to be able to accept that and psychologically handle that as a shareholder sam your thoughts on barrett and the house builders at the moment yeah like you say we have started to see a turn in the results i mean there's not a huge amount they can do at the minute they've still got a decent order book so they you know for the short term they are fine it's anecdotal, but you you know you see what's going on with like mortgages and stuff at the minute, and like because no one's got any idea where interest rates are going to be, it's very difficult to get a mortgage. So you've seen almost the mortgages are drying up, but it haven't yet. It doesn't seem to have followed through into much of a drop in house prices yet. So yeah, it could be a rough couple of years, but it's the same as we say every time. In the long term, I still like it. It's. We're still building a hundred thousand less houses a year than we than we need to be, and in the long term, it's you know it's it is a cyclical business. It's you know part of the reason it's so cheap is because it's factoring in where it thinks we are in the cycle. And if you buy it and hold it for the long term, I think you could do very well. You're going to get some good dividends. All right, you know the results might worsen, the dividend might get cut a bit as the earnings drop, but I think it's in a good position to weather the storm. And in the long term, I think it's a very, very good industry to be in. So, yeah, these aren't, you know, there are, we're starting to see things coming through in these results where you think, oh, you want to keep an eye on that if that gets worse. But that's why it's so cheap. And I think it's an opportunity. And it's not just this, it's the majority of the house builders. We've got some very high quality house builders, I think, listed on the FTSE. And they're all very cheap at the minute. And there's some very good businesses there if you don't mind potentially two or three years of pain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I'd just to give you an example of the volatility, I had Taylor Wimpy. So I had that in late. So I had it in, um, it'd been as early as 2017, 2018. Anyway, I remember it being around a pound between one pound and one pound 30 pre in the sort of winter of 2019 when there were lots of brexit uncertainties um there wasn't a majority well there wasn't a, a working government at the time and then that recovered to i don't know over two pounds maybe as high as two pounds 30 after the conservatives won a majority in early or in late 2019 going into early 2020 and then from that sort of two pounds 30 we were dropping well below that in the pandemic and then it's it was back up after that and now it's well back down in fact i should just check um for reference i don't follow taylor wimpy as closely anymore as i now have redro but taylor wimpy is now 89 pence so it's cheaper than any point i've owned it but apart from that the cycle change i still think it's very good but they're all pretty good businesses yeah, and that's they are good businesses. You've just got to buy them, and you know they're going to be quite empty. <laughs> yes. It's going to be, you know, it's not going to be a smooth uphill ride. But yeah. you know, I think they're in a good position to weather any storm. And I think in the long term, there's a lot of trends in their favour. So, 
It's very you know, cheap, and you're going to get. And as well, I know the dividends will drop, but you have to remember in that period you are going to be getting some nice dividends out of it. Yeah, yeah, and it depends what you do with your dividends. But if you reinvest them again, you over the last few years you'd have been getting quite cheap stock. Mm. So yeah, it's it's things are beginning to change, but I still still like the sector, and I think particularly if you are more value orientated, it's wow, you don't get better value than that. Yeah. Right, shall we move on to another business that might be a bit of a value play at the moment? Value, oh, yeah, in the in the context of American growth and FANG. <laughs> Absolutely. So Netflix, a business that we've covered quite a few times now, shouldn't need an introduction. They have come out with their Q3 results and they added 2.4 million paying subscribers in the quarter, which is better than the 1 million forecast, but 2 million lower than the same time last year. Operating profits fell to $1.5 billion, down from $1.8 billion. But this was better than expected because of the higher revenue and the favorable timing of some costs. The group said the appreciation of the US dollar remains a significant headwind, which affects profits on the overseas revenue. And it's hard to accurately predict demand because of difficult economic positions. Nonetheless, the group expects 4.5 million new paying subscribers in the fourth quarter, which is Seems pretty big to me. If we break the results down a bit more, higher subscription additions helped overall revenue rise almost 6% to $7.9 billion. The fastest revenue growth was in Asia Pacific, which rose 19%, excluding exchange rates to $889 million. That reflected 23% growth in average subscriber levels with 1.43 million new subscribers. The slowest revenue growth was 11% to $3.6 billion in US and Canada, which is the most mature region. New additions were only 100,000 in this region. Oh, so that means the rest, the majority of the revenue growth must have come from price increases in that case. Europe, Middle East and Africa and Latin America saw revenue rise 13% to 2.4 billion and 19% to 1 billion respectively. Average revenue per member, excluding currency movements, rose in all regions other than Asia Pacific and Europe, Middle East and Africa. The US and Canada remains the group's most lucrative with average revenue per member of $16.37 for the quarter. Netflix spent $4.6 billion on content, which was similar to the previous year. For the year to date, the current bill stands at $12.9 billion, which is about $800 million higher than this point in 2021. Ignoring the effect of adverse currency movements, operating margins were 22.5% in the year to date, and Netflix is on track to meet its full-year margin targets. Underlying free cash flow was $471 million compared with an outflow of $106 million in the previous year. Groups on track to target free cash flow of over $1 billion for the full year. Net debt stood at $7.9 billion at the end of September, equivalent to 1.2 times cash profits. In terms of the valuation, the business trades at a forward PE of 22.9 and that compares to a 10-year average of 110.9 and there's no dividend. There's a few things I'd comment on. Firstly, I don't think the PE, the 10-year average PE is any use because it's a very different business and it was 10 years ago. It's not in that same hyper-growth mode anymore. But the last couple of times we've covered Netflix, it's been losing subscribers. I don't know what the seasonality is like and I know they will come and go, but it seems to have turned it around. It's expecting a gain in subscribers next quarter as well. So I think this is probably the most encouraging quarterly results we've had from Netflix in a year or so. If the content spend remains the same and all those new subscribers can just be added onto the bottom line, it could be quite a profitable business. And it's already at a forward P of 23, which isn't outrageous for what a high quality business it is. 
the main concern I do have with Netflix is it's just got so much competition now compared to five years ago. So it's got Disney Plus, you've got HBO Max, you've got anyone you can think of, really. They've got their own competitors to Netflix. And I think that means in an inflationary environment, they could struggle. Because I just think Netflix can't raise the prices anymore like they used to. Because I think if they do, they'll just get a drop off. Because it is much more expensive than Disney Plus. And I don't think it has as good brands as Disney. I appreciate some people like what they like. There's a guy I follow on Twitter and he was saying that Disney's rubbish. He doesn't like the brands and he only likes the Netflix content. Whereas I, I'm the opposite. Like I do like the Star Wars and I will I will watch that on Disney. There's not I don't have Netflix and I don't really feel any need to have it. I've had it in the past and I don't really feel like I'm missing out because there's just so much stuff to watch on everything. And I don't spend that much time watching stuff that the Disney's more than enough for what I need. So, yeah, so... I think this is encouraging from Netflix, but it's probably still not a business I would be interested in just because I'd, I'd rather own Disney. John, what are your thoughts on these results and the valuation? Yeah, I mean, I think encouraging, certainly when compared with the last, you say last couple? Okay, it's last, at least the last course. couple, yeah. Yeah, but it is, they do have to spend a huge amount on the content. And like you say, the competition's only growing. So where Netflix was dominating it was sort of in there on its own and particularly with the launch of Disney plus and like you say, HBO as well, there's a huge amount of competition now and it's having to do more to, to keep its to keep its customers. And I think if I were looking for a business like this, I own Disney and I'm, I am very biased towards Disney, but it's got, I think it's got better IP. It's also got the park side of the business and then Disney plus is really dominating at the moment so I, I i while it's cheaper than it has been for a long or historically i'd say I'd, I'd much rather buy disney as a stock and have that sort of the streaming as part of that business so pretty pretty it's in pretty, tune there yeah um and we both do own disney so we we are yeah. properly in tune on that of the companies this week what would you be your pick probably louis vuitton what about you yeah it probably would be as well it's it's boring but barrett would be my next and i do have a house builder but i also my portfolio i've got a house builder and i do like those sort of the the consumer goods and those really high well particularly the the higher quality ones and i mean you don't get as we say we don't you don't get higher quality than that so no i don't don't... i take a serious look at in terms of starting a position yeah i agree Right, I think that's everything then. Thank you again for listening. Right, see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Investor Way. To get in touch, please follow us on Twitter at TIW Tweets. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute financial advice. Neither Sam nor Jonathan are financial advisors. For investment advice, please consult professional advisors.